Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Doom to Bloom podcast. Today it's just me, Jacqueline, your host, and I don't know if you can tell by the title of this episode, but I'm going to be talking about all of the gaps, all of the system failures, all of the ways that the systems definitely do not help the very vulnerable population that I work with day in and day out. And so I'm hoping this will bring some light to the struggles that they face every day and the struggles that us as workers and support staff also struggle with because our hands are sort of tied in some ways for supporting them. So stay tuned. I do get a little heated and passionate about this topic, so just bear with me, but I hope you can understand at the end of this episode why that's the case. So I'm going to start kind of at the very beginning, Um, and a lot of these are examples, I guess, from clients I have worked with in the past or do currently work with, but they're all a mix of everybody's experiences, so I'm not centering it one person or anything like that. So one of the big components, I guess, is the environment that they grew up in, so their childhood, right? Were their parents in jail? Did their parents struggle with addiction? Was there abuse or neglect? Especially in childhood, were the parents emotionally available? Were they unavailable? Did they struggle with poverty? Was there family finance struggles? Were the parents unemployed? Was there a single parent that was forced to work even more than kind of the 40-hour, 50-hour work week? A lot of these um, factors, I guess we'll say, are a direct correlation to the situation some people find themselves in now. And when I say that, so let's use the name, what's the first name that comes to mind? Um, let's use John. So if John experienced that his parents were in active addiction or he had childhood abuse and his parents were both also emotionally unavailable, that is going to affect how he grows up, right? It's going to affect a lot of parts of him, and that's going to be the deep trauma that probably hasn't been worked through when we get to a later stage in the episode. So then this brings me to kind of step two or phase two. So John, when he leaves home because he doesn't want to deal with his parents' trauma and what they're still inflicting on him, so he leaves the home. Now, sometimes that means, you know, they're on the quote-unquote proper pathway, which, according to society, would be to rent a shelter of some spot, like a home or an apartment, whatever that looks like, be employed and be a quote-unquote functioning member of society. Now, if they take that pathway, then all is fine and dandy. But the reality of it is John might leave the home He might have employment, but then all of those traumas and triggers from what he experienced in his home may come back out and maybe the employment doesn't last. Or maybe he doesn't get employed, but he goes to live with a friend or a partner. Maybe they break up or they have a falling out, then he's left couch surfing. Ultimately, that might lead to a shelter situation, which obviously is not ideal. Now... I think it's important to note that should John, in this instance, end up in a shelter, that there's a lot of a lot of things at play for what this looks like. So 
keep in mind that often stuff belongings whatever it may be that John might have with him often gets stolen in shelters there's a lack of privacy there's a lack of space there's often a lot of substance use that goes on there and there's often or quite often there's assaults that occur now a lot of those that are in shelters are in there because they're low income because of these continually failed systems that turn it into a cycle And bear with me, I'll get to that in a minute or a few minutes. But so if John were to be in the shelter, he might experience those things. But then also keep in mind that over time, life in the shelter isn't great. Nobody wants to be in the shelter. You get your basic need of shelter met for the nighttime. But then there's usually anyways, shelters will say, you know, you can't be here between the hours of... 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. or 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. Well, what's John to do? Then he's going to be on the street, right? So then that starts the cycle. Now, the other thing to note, in the shelter system, if somebody is using substances, and that could be meth, that could be fentanyl, that could be alcohol, cocaine, like it could be a whole host of different substances, If they are using and they quote-unquote act out, at times the shelter staff can and do give a ban from the shelter. So that could be indefinite, which means that like they are not able to return ever at all. Or it could be a certain time frame hoping that they quote-unquote get their act together. Again, if they're banned from the shelter, where are they going to go? They're going to be NFA, no fixed address, and likely unhoused and homeless without even the shelter to support, right? Now, I wanted to give this quick not fun fact. So in London, Ontario, which is where I work my full-time position, I want to tell you how many shelters there are and who the shelters are for because this was astounding to me. I had no idea that this was the case. So in London, Ontario, there is one family shelter, which obviously is for those parents and their children, There is a woman's shelter, which is woman only, and usually it's as a result of domestic violence. There is one youth shelter, and youth, I think, is up to 24, I believe, or maybe it's 23. There is one men's only, one complete men's shelter, which I can tell you without a doubt that I see every day is that it's full and overfilling onto the property and the land around it. And then there's also one other shelter that is for men and women, and there's a few youth beds. But I don't know what the population is in London, Ontario right now of those that are unhoused and currently living rough and on the streets. But I can tell you that the amount of shelter that we have right now, it's not enough. It's nowhere near enough. And especially if you're a youth or a male. So keep that in mind. Now, going back to John being in shelter, let's say he doesn't get kicked out, he doesn't get a ban. So John is still in shelter. So do you really think that he's going to be looking for housing or employment day in and day out while he's at the shelter? Because his basic needs aren't even met. There's a concern of safety, there's a concern of food and warmth and water, and a sense of belonging that he probably doesn't have. There's security concerns. There's 
you know, there's a whole bunch of different concerns that basic needs aren't being met. So how can you turn not having your basic needs met into, well, I'm going to just not worry about food or shelter or my safety and I'm just going to go directly into employment. That's not realistic and I don't know how many people actually do that. So now let's do this hypothetically. So if John were to say that he is in shelter, doesn't care about his basic needs, and he's going to start looking for employment, for starters, who is going to hire somebody without an address? Who is going to hire somebody for employment if they show up carrying all the belongings that they own, which is very typical of people that live in shelters? They often have two, three, four, five, however many bags, and that's all the clothes they own, or that's everything that they had. Who's going to hire somebody that shows up with five bags? Who's going to hire somebody for employment if, you know, they don't have access to the basic needs of hygiene and laundry and just looking, quote-unquote, presentable? Again, that comes back to the whole, the cycle is going to continue, right? Now, Moving along with employment, if somebody isn't able to get employment, they can go on social assistance. So in Ontario, Canada, we have OW and ODFP. OW stands for Ontario Works. And here's another not-so-fun fact. So in one month time, those on OW can receive up to $390. for shelter, which is the allotment for rent. It's absurd. And then within that month, they get somewhere around $400 for basic needs. So realistically, the government is telling this individual to live off of $800 a month. How? How in the world can somebody do that? How? And then on the other hand, for ODSP, similarly... Their shelter is 556. Again, you can't even rent a room for that right now. And their basic needs, which would be, you know, covering food, covering the phone bill, covering uh, water or laundry, whatever that looks like, is somewhere around the $600 mark. So those on ODSP are living off of, or expected to live off of, somewhere around $1,100. Now, Wherever you're listening, feel free to chime in and let me know in the comments, but the rental market here in Ontario, Canada is absolutely absurd. We have room rentals and one-bedroom apartments for anywhere from 1000 to like 1800 How can somebody who gets either, you know, $556 a month or $390 a month afford that? They can't, right? And then in turn... It leads me to kind of the stigma that most people have on those on social assistance, which is who wants to hire somebody that is on social assistance or who wants to hire somebody that might have a potential criminal record. And there's also the concern of who will rent to someone on social assistance because there's that stigma around social assistance anyways, who will rent to them? So there's also the struggle of trying to find somebody landlord-wise that will. But then even if they were to say, yes, I'll rent to you, they can't afford it. You're supposed to pay, again, like I said, the market right now is somewhere around 
you know, $1,000 to $1,800 a month for a one-bedroom, sometimes even a bachelor, so there's not even a bedroom, how do they pay for food or utilities or hydro, you know, like, or laundry? How do they, how do they do that? So this leads me back to the question of if somebody, example, John, is in shelter, how do they get a job? How do they get housing? How do they get out of the shelter and eliminate the system? It's hard. So on the housing front, the rent geared to income, which is kind of a lower income housing, that wait list is somewhere around seven to nine years long. So here's the kicker. What do they do for shelter during those seven to nine years of waiting? Because if they happen to use substance or they happen to get a ban, then they're not allowed back at that specific shelter. And if you're a male, you only have possibly one, possibly two options. If you're a youth, you have the youth one up until 23 or 24 years old. If you get kicked out of that one, you have the one with the adults. And then if you get kicked out of that one, you have no other options. So how realistic is that? Right? Often the cycle of being no fixed address or in the shelter is at most points incarceration will come up and not that we want to see that obviously but that's kind of the reality of this cycle that we get into and typically I also see this a lot is when say John gets incarcerated he serves his two months three months whatever the time is he loses that spot in shelter and so when he's released he goes back to being no fixed address and has to fight the system to get back into the shelter because somebody else took that spot and now there's a wait list of 15 people there is a few housing programs, too, that I do know of in my area, but again, space is very limited and there's a housing crisis and just the inflation just makes everything ridiculous right now. The other part of incarceration that really grinds my gears is that while somebody is incarcerated, so for example, John um, committed a petty theft or a minor offense and he was picked up. So my experience with people that are in the jails, not necessarily the offender or the inmate, but the staff, they just don't care. They're there for the hefty paycheck or they're too short staff so they're running like a chicken with their head cut off or they are too short staff so they just keep everyone in their cells and then put holds on programs and put holds on visitors and puts holds on you know, the phone calls to potential supports or to family or to friends. That all means that the lack of programming, the lack of rehabilitation that incarceration is supposed to provide based on what the court system says doesn't happen. So for John, say he was um, committing theft because he's in the shelter, he needs to get money for his substances. Now he goes into incarceration, how is anything going to change? How is he going to be rehabilitated if he's locked in his cell more often than he's supposed to? If there's no programming, if there's no NA or A meetings in, 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 in incarceration, how? How will anything change? And then on the medication end for addiction in jail, they often will put people on either methadone, suboxone, or sublocade which will be a whole other conversation another time. But if, say, John was on one of those three, 
but then he served his time, so he was released. Great. He was released because he lost his spot at the shelter. He was released to the street. How will he have access to medical care, medications, the pharmacy, if he's NFA, if he's no fixed address? So the other kicker, you can see why this cycle goes on and on. Some who are in jail may have been this way for years or even decades. You know, they commit a crime, they get convicted, they go to incarceration, they're in incarceration for a long time, lose supports, lose housing, lose connections, released substance use, shelter, and it continues. Now, for me to kind of backtrack here a little bit, to apply for the rent-geared income housing, which I kind of touched on a little bit before, this drives me bananas. You need identification. You need ID. Sounds simple, right? Typically, they'll ask for a birth certificate, but then they'll also ask for photo ID. Now, if somebody is on low income, a birth certificate and the Ontario photo card are both $35. That may not seem like a lot, but that is, I think, $70 that somebody doesn't have when they're only getting $400 in basic needs or $600 in basic needs. And then they don't have an address, so where are they going to ship that ID to? Where are they going to mail it to? They can't. Now, alongside this, often housing, even in the private market or in the rent-to-geared income, want a credit score. How do they get a credit score when they're in the shelter? And often housing also wants a direct payment, so they need to link your bank account for a direct deposit payment to come out. But bank accounts require ID. And again, it goes back to how do they get ID on low income and get it mailed to somewhere that they don't have an address. So how? How do they get housing? Now, if somebody has no fixed address or even in the shelter to get medications or health care, which if you're living rough, you're living on the street, your basic needs aren't necessarily getting met, or maybe some are here and there or sporadically they are, you are going to struggle with your health physically and likely mentally. And because you're an FA, you don't likely have ID or bank account. You don't have a family doctor, which is also a shortage here in Ontario right now. They're probably going to go to the eMERGE system. And then they get told that they're, quote unquote, bogging down the system for people that actually need it. But they're in this cycle that they can't get out of because of all of these government systems. And so they're trying to access, access sorry, the health care that they deserve, but they can't get it. And then also that speaks to sometimes if they go to eMERGE at the hospital, they need ID to prove like, hey, this is my health card. They might not have that. So then are they going to get denied health care? It's unfortunately happens quite often, more than you want to think it does. The other part of this whole cycle is that oftentimes being unhoused, being homeless, being no fixed address, however you want to word it, often leads to substance use and abuse or that was what got them NFA in the first place. So I want you to take a few seconds here and think back to when you were in high school or 
college or university, wherever this was experienced by you. But I want you to think back to this time frame where everybody around you was peer pressuring you to drink alcohol for maybe the first time, maybe the 20th time. But at a party, you were thinking, oh, I don't really want to drink. I don't really want to be here. I just wanted to show my face, make an appearance, and then I'm going to dip. Well, think of how hard and how exhaustive that peer pressure was on you at that time for alcohol. And I'm not saying alcohol is great, but I'm saying that sometimes the drugs that are being used within substance use for those that are unhoused are much more addictive, much more scary in terms of the effects and the overdose rates compared to alcohol. Now, again, hear me out. I'm not saying alcohol is a good thing, so please don't think that. But I want you to think on how that peer pressure was to drink your first drink of alcohol or your first party. Now, think if you're in a group of people, we often call it a tent community because if people can't get in the shelter, they will live in a tent and then they kind of build up their community with, you know, three or four people that are also in tents and they look out for each other. Now, if somebody is using substance actively in that group and they try to give it to John, for example, the peer pressure that he's going to feel to try it might just be all it takes for him to be addicted. And then it's game over. The addiction is now active and he needs to do what he needs to do in his mind to be able to get those substances, right? And so what does that look like? Well, that might look like stealing, which is, you know, an offense, so legal involvement will happen. It might look like being assaulted. It might look like more health issues, which, again, going to emerge as an ideal when there's all these other systems that are lagging. So that addiction piece just makes the housing component and the ID component and the medical, mental health and physical health way more challenging. But, you know, sometimes I hear clients say, I want to go to jail. Like I committed this petty theft of, you know, a movie so that I could get charged and go to jail because at least then I would have shelter and food and clothes and a shower. I'd be in my own cell with one other person. I'd be safe. I would know what's going on at what times and where. And I've also heard of some people who have been no fixed address, have been unhoused or in shelters for so freaking long that a lot of their criminal record is them stealing, which I don't condone, that's not good, but they were stealing food from dollar stores or Walmarts. That started this person's incarceration cycle, and so then they went from jail, they were incarcerated at jail, lost their housing, lost their supports, and then they were NFA for 10 plus years, all because they couldn't get their basic needs of having water and food. So... Hopefully this episode was helpful in learning how the cycle perpetuates itself, but also how the failed systems and the legs and loopholes and all the systems are not helpful. They, they, they're so tough to work through as somebody in social services trying to support people through these systems, let alone somebody on the other side trying to navigate it alone, right? So... This, this little cycle I drew on my paper here in front of me, it has low money, low income, no money, no employment, and arrow down to 
struggles for housing, possible shelter life, leads to legal involvement, possibly but not always, and then if there's legal involvement, that leads to being released into community, which might lead into substance use, which then that substance use leads into the low money, low income, no income, which then makes it even harder to get housing, and then there's more legal involvement, and it just continues. It's a vicious circle and a vicious cycle. So I hope this was helpful in learning about some of these systems that I battle with day in and day out. And I hope the next time that you see somebody who may be unhoused, who may be in a shelter, who may not necessarily be the most hygienic on the street or pushing a cart, I hope you just take a minute to think of, you know, what got them there. Maybe it was, you know, their own action, which substance use is not a choice. It's a disease. It's an addiction. But Maybe their addiction did lead them to lose housing, but that doesn't mean they deserve to live in a shelter forever. That doesn't mean they deserve to be on the street. That doesn't mean they deserve to live in a tent. My opinion is that everybody deserves housing, medical attention, mental health and physical, and they deserve to have access to food. I don't think anybody is above anybody, regardless of the income amount or career status. I think Everybody should be equal and everybody should have access to housing and food and water and just shelter. So why are the systems the way they are? I challenge you to think on that and maybe shift your perspective a little bit the next time, like I said, that you see somebody who's unhoused or clearly struggling on the side of the street or coming out of a shelter. I challenge you to change your perspective on how you view this individual and keep in mind all of these cycles and failures of the systems. I hope this episode was helpful, and I would love feedback. I would love you to review or rate or follow the podcast on any major platform that you listen to me on, and feel free to follow my Instagram page, Doom to Bloom Podcast 2022, on Instagram. It's where I'm most active, and that's where a lot of these conversations take place. I look forward to seeing you there, and until next time, I'm sending you lots of love and lots of light.